morning. Happy Mother's Day. Let's clap for our moms. Let's do that. And in, I guess it's kind of a tradition now, we have, we have Dove chocolate for all the women. All the women. Doesn't even matter your age. There's Dove chocolate in the back. Grab one on your way out. And guys, you can applaud them and look longingly while they eat it. But hang in there till Father's Day and we'll reward you. Uh, I haven't read this for a few years, but based on what we're going to talk about this morning, I thought this would be a good, um, just to honor, honor our moms, but honor, I mean, I know Mother's Day hits in many different ways, so just, just kind of receive this. This is a little bit longer, but it's worth a read, I think. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate with you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. Food stains are the best stains, actually. That gets a lot worse than that, doesn't it? (laughs) To those who experience loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you... And we ask you to forgive us when we say foolish things. We don't mean to make this harder than it is. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate with you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those of you in our church family who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who experienced abuse at the hands of your own mother, we acknowledge your experience. To those who lived through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. To those who are single and long to be married and mothering your own children, we mourn that life has not turned out the way you longed for it to be. To those who step-parent, we walk with you on these complex paths. To those who envisioned lavishing love on grandchildren, yet that dream is not to be, we grieve with you. To those who will have emptier nests in the upcoming year, we both grieve and rejoice with you. To those who place children up for adoption, we commend you for your selflessness and we remember how you hold that child in your heart. And to those who are pregnant with new life, I know there are a handful of you ladies here even today, both expected and surprising, we anticipate with you. (laughs) And so I guess we're reminded of all the different ways, right? Happy Mother's Day. Mothering is not for the faint of heart and we have real warriors in our midst. So thank you. Thanks, Mom. You can clap again. Some of you want to clap. Go ahead. Well, we're in a series on Babylon, and we've been asking, I mean, a variety of questions, and maybe maybe I'll say it this way. Jesus cares about how the disciples behave in a world that's out of control. And so one of the underlying questions that we've been asking, and I think starting next week, well, 
maybe a little this week, but starting next week, we'll probably lean into this even more. How does Jesus want his followers to live in a world that is constantly on the verge of crisis and constantly feels like it's falling apart? How should we live when the world is out of control? What kind of mindset should we have What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus for our love not to grow cold? What does it mean for us to not lose hope? And I was talking to my wife, Kami, on, I think it was Monday. I kind of, you know, I've I've scripted part of the series as we go through this, but I'm also learning a lot, and so I'm giving myself some flexibility to make some audibles along the way. And I realized that this Sunday was Mother's Day, and I looked at Kami and I said, uh, I'm in a series on Babylon, <laughs> and Mother's Day is this Sunday. What do I do? And actually, I was expecting her to be like, wow, I don't know. What do you do? But she looked at me, smiled, and immediately said, you should preach on Mary's Magnificat. And I was like, yeah, I should. <laughs> that's a great idea. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Mary. And I want to spend a little time, I mean, maybe even in the way that I read this longer thing, to open our minds to all the ways that we can experience, that we could experience Mother's Day. I want us then to kind of enter into Mary's story, and I might even, I mean, maybe you've read this, the Magnificat, it's this song, this prayer in Luke chapter 1, it may be familiar to you when we get there. But I want to try to help us get into the mind, into the situation, the circumstances of probably the most famous mother who's ever lived, right? Mary. Uh, And so I I want to just begin and kind of connect it to our series. If you're mothering in the midst of modern day Babylon, you're not the first. And I want to help you see in, in maybe extreme ways, but very true ways, that Mary's life doesn't start perfect, and it doesn't really get easier. When we first meet Mary, she's a teenager, and the Romans, which would have been her version of modern-day Babylon, the Romans hold all the power, and Mary herself holds very little power to affect her circumstances, her situation, and her future. I mean, these are things you know, but we're so caught up in, I mean, just the, the Christmas spirit, I guess, that when we think about the Christmas story, we don't usually think about how much Babylon is present, even for Mary. I mean, think about this. The Romans required Mary to walk 70 miles while she's pregnant with a full-term baby to go to Bethlehem for a census. 70 miles. And while she's transported from her home to this rural village, Mary finds herself homeless in a manger, giving birth to her first child. I guess Jesus, Mary's not in the manger, right? Jesus is laid in the manger, but we get the story. And then soon after this, Mary and Joseph are forced to flee with Jesus and become refugees in Egypt because the current tyrant king over their region, Herod, had ordered half of Jesus' playmates in Bethlehem to be killed. Right? This is the story. I mean, again, we love the story of the three wise men. The story of the Magi really is coming, saying, Herod, we've heard the king of the Jews has been born. Where is he? Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews. What do you mean? 
And Herod, in typical Babylonian form, is threatened. His power is threatened. And, and what does he do? This is, this is as, we, as we get our minds around Babylon and the way of Babylon and how Babylon deals in death, what does Herod do? Herod wants one child removed, and so he kills many innocent boys with the hopes that he gets the one that he wants. It's just the way of Babylon. That's, that's Mary's world. It's the lunacy of Babylon. It's one of these things about the Bible that, that maybe we, we underappreciate how deeply honest the biblical story is. The Bible, I mean, even in this fun Christmas story, the Bible doesn't shy away from the brutality of life in Babylon. I mean, even another story, you wouldn't know this from the biblical story, but from history we are told when, when Mary's a teenager, she's in Nazareth, Nazareth, Sephoris is four miles away, and there was a bit of a Jewish uprising, a revolt because of the Roman occupation, because of the Babylonian overlordship of Rome, and 2,000 Jewish men are crucified, four miles from Mary's home. And then, let's go a step further, okay, so that's life in Rome, but God doesn't really make it easier for her, does he? I mean, he comes and he tells this peasant girl who's not married yet that the Holy Spirit is going to basically, you know, come upon her. She's going to be pregnant. In Mary's world, that usually means a devastating retribution from her community. In fact, even Joseph, who she's betrothed to, is trying to figure out how do I, how do I divorce Mary quietly so as not to embarrass her mom? Because by all accounts, it looks like she has committed adultery. And even Jewish law of her day means that she is in danger of being stoned to death. <laughs> so she's in Rome, and then God creates a circumstance that's even a little bit harder for this, for this young woman, this young mom. And then you think about what happens as time goes on. Does it get easier or harder for Mary? Well... You fast forward 30 years, and of course, I mean, if you know the story of Jesus, 30 years, I mean, actually when Mary's about my age right now, I mean, maybe I'm a year or two younger of what she would have been, but she, maybe my age right now, Mary watches her son die before she does. I mean, there's one thing that we can agree upon. You know the world is not the way it's supposed to be when parents outlive their children. It's not the way God designed it to be. Or even let's, let's think about as we're in this series on Babylon, and I've been doing a little bit of a deeper dive into where this theme just kind of plays out. This week I was drawn to what is often called the Olivet Discourse. And this could be a sermon on its own. We're going to eventually get to Mary's. But I, I kind of want to set the stage and, and help you feel a little bit more what's going on. Uh, Jesus gives this, this, this pretty big sermon message near the end of his life kind of the end of his ministry it's kind of leading into everything that's about that happens with good friday and easter and matthew mark and luke all record this and they all kind of i mean it was probably longer than what we have in the gospels and so they all kind of summarize it in different ways as their each gospel has a kind of a different thing they're trying to present to the people as i mean the gospels are really discipleship manuals and they're teaching us about jesus and how to live 
But in Luke 21, in verse 20, I mean, there's a lot more going on in this. I'm just going to give you a, a tiny little nugget. But, but Jesus is talking, and he says this, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. So Jesus is talking about many things. And we, again, this could be a couple sermons on us. This is a, this is a, a fun passage. But at least on one level, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And you drop down just a few verses as he's, he's going to adopt the language of the prophets who have gone before, poetic language to try to capture what is happening. And in verse 25, he says this, There will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. Luke is summarizing. He's giving us a shorter version. So, Let me just turn to Matthew. You get a little bit more of kind of the quote that Jesus is referencing here. Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus is quoting Isaiah. He says, The sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. He's quoting Isaiah 13. And and again, sometimes we get really confused. What is he saying? What, What is he talking about? It's kind of apocalyptic language. But it's not that tricky if we just turn to Isaiah 13 and read what's happening. (laughs) So let's turn to Isaiah 13 and read what's happening. Let me read verse 1 to you. It begins this way. Isaiah, son of Amos, received this message concerning the destruction of Babylon. Here we are. Verse 10 is the quote that, that Jesus does there in Matthew. The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no light. The, moon, the, the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will provide no light. Darkness, no light. And then at the end of Isaiah 13, again, just because we're in this series, Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of Chaldean pride, will be devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them. Babylon will never be inhabited again. It will remain empty for generation after generation. Nomads will refuse to camp there, and shepherds will not bed down their sheep. Isaiah wrote a poem depicting how God would level Babylon to the ground. And in the course of describing the downfall of Babylon, he he talks about how the stars, the sun, and the moon would would fall or go dark. It's, it's poetry. Isaiah is trying to find language strong enough to communicate something that people would have never believed. How could Babylon fall? <laughs> and the only language that Isaiah finds is this poetic language of the cosmos itself dissolving or, or ceasing to work. <laughs> and so it's interesting, right? I think we can make some connections here. If Jesus is quoting Isaiah, Isaiah talking about the fall of Babylon and Jesus talking about the fall of Jerusalem, well, Jesus is both warning and kind of saying that the same fate that fell upon Babylon is coming for Jerusalem because Jerusalem has become Babylon. And just part of what I want you to see is Mary begins in Israel under this bigger umbrella of Babylon and Rome, but through her lifetime, I mean, even where she's living is becoming more and more Babylonian. And Jesus gives this warning, and sure enough, in 40 years, Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome, and the temple is, um, is torn down, and it's never, it's never been rebuilt. <laughs> 
But Jesus is saying that Jerusalem has become indistinguishable from the great, violent, arrogant nations of the world. And so he predicts its downfall the same way Isaiah did. I'm just telling you, Mary knows what it's like to live in Babylon and see Babylon become ever more present in her home. (laughs) And again, this is what we've been talking about in the series, and we'll talk more about in upcoming weeks. But but Jerusalem is in danger because they've picked up the tools of Babylon, as we've been talking about, and they've begun to think Babylonian. And so they're dealing in death and calling evil good, and they're going to experience the same fate as Babylon. Well, part of what I want to do on Mother's Day, I mean, I know this is kind of like heavy, like, well, that's not an exciting, but, but what I want us to do then, I want to be honest. But I want us to, to, to maybe find some hope, some hope in Jesus and maybe help us, maybe, because maybe some of us are despairing and lacking in hope. So how do we get there? Well, first, let me remind you of the good news. John begins his, if you will, Christmas story. John takes a more poetic approach, you could say, in John chapter 1 and And this is how he begins the first five verses. In the beginning, the Word already existed. (laughs) The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. And I want you to hear this, especially if you're feeling the way to Babylon this morning, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So even if you feel like the the cosmos itself is dissolving and the sun, moon, and stars are falling and darkness is everywhere, maybe you feel that right now. The gospel says that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish. Let me say that again. The darkness can never extinguish the light revealed in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, Mary lived through some difficult times, some things I wouldn't wish on any of you here, but her hope was in this child. Not just any child, but God in human flesh. Who brings light into the darkness. We are a people of hope. No matter how bad it gets. And the gospel is the light that shines in the midst of the darkness. And the darkness does not overcome it. I mean let's be honest. There's a dark side of life that we'd rather not talk about. And we'd rather forget. But if we forget it then the story doesn't really ring true. Because we're not living in a fairy tale. And by, by telling the story and talking about how real the darkness is, which the Bible does. The Bible talks about how real the darkness is. We, we keep telling that story, we're honest, but we also keep preaching the gospel and tell the story of a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. Because we are a people who remain hopeful in Jesus. 
or let me say it this way, following the Jesus way of love, of self-sacrifice, of cruciformity, of vulnerability, does not mean that you and I will never get hurt. But I do think if we follow the Jesus way of love, of cruciformity, of carrying our own cross, it does actually guarantee that the darkness won't prevail. We may get hurt and we may suffer along the way, but the darkness won't prevail. The light will continue to shine. Mary believes this. Even though her circumstances aren't the way she wants them, Mary knows that circumstances can't take the presence of God away. And that sometimes the worst circumstances somehow seem to even give you more of the presence of God, which is what we really long for, life. Hope, love. <laughs> so let's get to this song, but this prayer. But before I read it, let me, let me set it up with the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you will know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is. He was a Christian who was executed in Nazi Germany. And he spoke these words in a sermon uh, he gave in 1933. He said, the song of Mary, that what we're about to read, is the, is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world. About the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that are deep within Mary's soul and now come out of her mouth. So as I read this, I don't want you to envision Mary as the radiant woman peacefully composing this song, this prayer. No, she is a, a young girl who sings defiantly to her God through her tears, fists clenched against an unknown future. Because she lives in Babylon, and Babylon's getting worse. <laughs> So this is her song, this is her prayer, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of who? His lowly servant girl. That's how she sees herself. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation. That's different than what we read in Isaiah 13, right? Not destruction, but mercy. Generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has, here we go, this is the revolutionary part. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones. Herod doesn't like hearing that. If you were with us last week, the principalities and powers don't like hearing that. And exalted the humble? 
We're going to need to sit with that. What does that even, how do we even imagine that when we live in modern day Babylon? He's filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away with empty hands. This is a total reversal. (laughs) He's helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. God is good. And even as we sing, he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. God is always true to his promises. So it's called the Magnificat because the first word in Latin is that. Mary is magnifying the Lord, but her song is so much more than that. It's a dangerous and revolutionary song. And song in the wrong place at the wrong time, singing a song like this could put you in jail. In fact, if you, if you Google this, you'll find out that there are times in history in certain nations where this song was literally banned because it's revolutionary. Or let me say it this way, again, as we're going to kind of rethink Mary this morning. This is not the kind of song sung by the ladies of the aristocracy. We don't sing songs like Mary is living in a time of Roman occupation and and her Jewish people are oppressed. They are deliberately kept in poverty while Rome and those in collusion with them are enriched. And Mary's song says that on the day the Almighty does what he's going to do, the mighty are cast down and the lowly are lifted up. It's a total reversal of fortune. That the hungry are filled and those who seemingly have it all are sent away empty. The proud, the full, the mighty are losing out while the humble, the hungry, and the lowly are having their day. And of course, if you read through the Gospels, you know that this theme, I mean, it's really the theme of the whole biblical story. I mean, Mary's actually just echoing out the language of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. And we'll close our service this morning with Psalm 113. It's it's nothing new, and it's, it's totally this theme of what Jesus is going to preach as he talks about the kingdom of God, as he introduces us to the Beatitudes, this reversal of fortunes, that God is rearranging the world. What Jesus does is invade from heaven and bring an alternative kingdom. Tyrant kings like Herod and Caesar have a vision of the way the world should be arranged, and it's a pyramid with them at the top. That's how Babylon always arranges the world. And Mary's not on the top, and she sees and anticipates a reversal that God has a completely alternative vision for the way the world could and should and must be arranged. And she knows that the kingdom of God, well, she she trusts that this child is going to, to usher it in. It's going to bear the heart of God, his mercy. What we could say today is that the kingdom of God looks like Jesus. That Jesus is the kingdom in person, a kingdom from heaven for earth. His personality is, his character is the character of the kingdom. And this upside downness, this reversal of bringing rulers down but lifting up the humble, that's what Jesus is coming to do. It's a reversal of values, a, a reversal of status. That the God who had all power made himself powerless so that the powerless might have his power. That's what we see in this unique king we call Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus is the only king who says, I have come for the weak. I have come for those who admit they are weak and I will save them, not by what they do, but but through what I do. King Jesus. So I want to take just then a a few more minutes and I kind of got three things. We'll go relatively quickly, but but I told you in the series, we're kind of going to go back and forth. We're going to try to name Babylon and try to put words to the falseness that we're feeling and maybe even begin to recognize some of the falseness that we're blind to. But I don't want to do that every week because then we'll be overwhelmed and I didn't want to do that on Mother's Day. Maybe I went a little farther than I even planned by it. But it's Mary's story. Most famous mom, right? It's okay. (laughs) But I also then want to help us lean into the resources that the Bible gives us, that Jesus gives us. The Bible is brutally honest about life. But there are so many resources available to you and I to navigate the darkness and the reality of Babylon. And the first thing that I glean from Mary's prayer that is so beautifully presented to us in the Gospel of Luke is how kingdom-saturated her imagination is. I mean, again, it's well scripted in in the Bible. She knows her Bible. She knows this bigger story that she's a part of. And she knows the character of the God she serves. But I'm also struck, again, by how kingdom saturated her imagination is. I was thinking about this for myself. And, and, and even maybe it's, I'm, a, I'm a dad, I'm not a mom, but, I, but I'm a parent. And thinking about this on Mother's Day... There have been a few times in the last couple months where I have had conversations with Kami, and in so many words, I've tried to confess to her how co-opted my imagination has become with Babylon when it comes to our son. And I'm probably not alone. Maybe some of you will resonate with this. But I find myself wanting Jay, my son, to be on the top of Babylon's pyramid. (laughs) I don't know if I'm alone in the room. I mean, I want myself on the top, but even more I want my son on the top. But if I have a kingdom-saturated imagination, then I will immediately know that I don't want my son there because God's going to bring them down. (laughs) And I actually want my son to follow Jesus and be a servant who washes others' feet. Somebody who humbles himself. Why? Because I believe the only one who's really going to lift us up is Jesus. And Jesus has said he's going to lift up the lowly. And so sometimes Kami and I have to have conversations where, where we're experiencing Babylon and Jay's not at the top and we're all upset. Jay's not winning in the game of life in this area. What do we do? And we get anxious. And we scream like that. We're animated in our house. But then we remind ourselves. Sometimes the Spirit of God saturates our imagination. And we're like, we don't want that. This is actually better for Jay. Because if he learns how to be lowly, if he accepts the servant's towel, then God himself will lift him up. Man, that's what I want. God, lift up my son. You take care of it. I mean, we need a kingdom-saturated imagination. And that's just one example. I think there's many exa- examples of how you and I, our imagination has been co-opted by Babylon. 
And as we're talking about hope this morning, I don't think you and I realize how much a co-opted imagination becomes a barrier to having any kind of hope. A few years ago, someone tried to define hope this way, and it really stuck with me. Hope is a combination of desire and expectation. Our hopes are always linked to what do we want and then what do we expect will satisfy or fulfill that desire. That is what we find ourselves hoping in. And again, I think if we don't have a kingdom-saturated imagination, we're going to have a lot of trouble hoping in Jesus. Let me just give one example that struck me this week as I was thinking about life in our modern day Babylon. You and I really don't have an imagination for patience at all. We've been so co-opted by immediate gratification, we have, we have no imagination for patience. What do you mean I can't have it now? What do you mean I have to wait? If I have to wait, it's not good enough then, right? <laughs> we have no imagination for patience and... I think we're also losing an imagination for gratitude. And what that means is we are becoming an incredibly impatient and entitled people, which the enemy loves. I mean, the enemy loves that. Just give me a bunch of impatient and entitled people. But it's really hard. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to say this to make you feel bad. I'm trying to say this to awaken hope in you. And maybe this is one of the places you start. Ask God to do a reversal in you so that you begin to value patience and gratitude. Be thankful for what God... I mean, Mary, I mean, Mary's in a bad situation. When she hears this announcement, and it's not going to just get immediately easier for her. I mean, I just, I tried to walk you through her life as we know it in the Gospels. It's a pretty rough life. But she's got hope. She's patient. She knows the Bible. She knows God is a God who is patient. That the fruit of the Spirit is patience and she's not entitled no i'm humble now but when the day comes when you lift me up oh i know and it's already coming because because this child is here somehow i'm living in this tension of already and not yet mary feels it so maybe this morning maybe the maybe maybe your first step out of the darkness and into the light let the light overwhelm the darkness is 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 repenting rethinking things in light of jesus and asking Asking the Spirit of God, bear the fruit of patience. Bear the fruit of gratitude. Prune me and rip out impatience and entitlement. Because I don't really know a flourishing life right now because I can't hope because I'm impatient and entitled. (laughs) That's maybe where we start. I mean, that's just one example. Maybe the Spirit of God gives you something else. Well, you say, well, that's... It's always fun to say those things. Yeah, like just, but, but no, you can't just will yourself to patience. How do you do this, right? This is something that only the Spirit of God can do, and you're right. So the, the next thing I would just, the second of our three things here just to think about is I want to invite you to find a place in your life where you've been humbled because you live in Babylon. Find a place of humility. When we humble ourselves and we sit there, what Mary seems to be saying is that God will come and he will lift you up and he will lift you up into royalty. (laughs) So maybe find a place of your profound disappointment or your brokenheartedness or your insufficiency or your lack. Find a place where you don't have it all together, where the dreams have gone up in smoke. 
Maybe it's a place where you've sinned or a place where you've been sinned against. Maybe it's just a place of deep sorrow, a place, a place where you don't have it all together. Not, where you're, not out of your strength, not where you're at the top of the pyramid, but where you're at the bottom. Because Jesus comes to meet you and your pain and your brokenness and, and to lift you up and to make you a prince or a princess. He comes to to minister to that sorrow and to bring healing and transformation and a revolution. <laughs> New life that you can't have apart from Him. When we identify where we're broken, where we're hurting, where we're insufficient, where, 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 where our strength is failing and we sit there, God will meet us there. God most fully meets us where we really are, not where we think we should be or are No, where we really are. God will meet us there. And so we sit in our place of humility and we wait for God to reverse it. I'll be honest, I've seen this with, because this is how God works. I've seen this with my son. There have been days when I've felt like he's at the bottom of the pyramid of Babylon and not at the top. And, I'm, and I can't control it and I don't know what to do. And I pray. And a few hours later, he's doing better than I ever imagined. Because God just, he lifts us up. This is how his kingdom works. This is what it's like. The gospel is that Jesus is coming. And when he comes to you, he's going to lift you up. He's going to come and say, yeah, you've sat there for a while, but you've sat there long enough. Now come, dine with me at my table with the royalty of the kingdom. <laughs> let Jesus meet you there. Let, 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 let the divine reversal come for you so that it's good news. All right, so we need a kingdom-saturated imagination. We need to sit in the place of humility. And then the last thing I want to say is I think we need to pray better prayers. I talk about this frequently, especially if you go through formed. This comes out of my time in prayer school about seven years ago. But over the last seven years, I think I've slowly learned that even my prayers have been co-opted by Babylon. It's part of the schemes of the enemy the enemy has set things up in our culture, right? It's part of this false rescue that we've talked about, this false order. We've been told that our desires are everything. So just do whatever you can to meet every single you desire you have. And do it now, right? Buy what you have to have or experience what you do, whatever you need to do to, to, to meet every desire right now. And we're also told that, if life, that life can only be good if our circumstances are the way we want them to be. Those are things that we're told, the schemes of the enemy. And out of all of this, out of our impatience, out of our entitlements, out of our just indulgence in our desires and trying to manage and control all of our circumstances, we have learned to make prayer a place of self-assertion where we let God know exactly what our agenda is and what he needs to do. And church, I, I really want to tell you in, in, in the most beautiful invitation I can, because I'm still I'm seven years in and still learning this, but this has been probably the most significant part of my own growth in Jesus over the last seven years. We all have to learn how to abandon our own agenda in prayer. Prayer is not the place for self-assertion. It's the place for humility and self-surrender. So if you don't know where that place of humility is, well, maybe it's just a place of prayer where you surrender to God's will. 
which is very countercultural. It's not modern-day Babylon, not my will but yours, and to mean it joyfully. But you can because God is good, <laughs> and he actually is smarter than you and I. Prayer is not a tool to use to get what you and I want. We don't use the prayers they form us. I've said this on many occasions, but the purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what I think he should do. And many of us, I mean, we're so Babylonian and we're trying not to be, but, but we really shouldn't just trust ourselves in prayer. Because proud people pray proud prayers and greedy people pray greedy prayers and angry people pray angry prayers prayers. And impatient and entitled people pray impatient and entitled prayers. And I really do hope as a part of the ministry here at Crossview, we are learning to pray Jesus-centered prayers. I pray a liturgy. I'm happy to share it with you. I teach it informed in our discipleship pathway. But what I've learned is to spend a little bit of time reminding myself of who God is and what his kingdom is like. I pray Psalm 23. I pray the Lord's Prayer. I pray certain things that remind me who God is before I ever ask anything of God. I do ask, but I find it good for my soul and my heart and my, so that my desires are not the center of my prayer, but Jesus and his kingdom are. Because if your desires are the center of your prayer life, you will never change. And you're becoming more and more Babylonian and you don't even know it. But if Jesus is the center of your prayer life, well, guess what? You may know new life. You may be born again. And so I sit with Jesus. He's the center of my prayer time. And then I pray things like the Beatitudes because there's a reversal coming and I want to be excited about it. And if God's lifting up the humble, then I want to be one of the humble. Don't throw me down, God. Don't, I don't want to be haughty and proud. I want to be one of the humble servants in your kingdom, lifted up, seated with you, seated with all of you around this great banquet feast of the kingdom. So again, I think, I invite the Spirit of God to give you a, a kingdom-saturated imagination. I, I think we're missing this. Find a place of humility. It's countercultural. Don't, don't sit where you're the strongest. Sit where you're the weakest and do so in prayer. And don't pray around your desires and your entitledness and your anger and your hate, but pray around Jesus and his... Let me just picture him on the cross and sit with him. <laughs> and what does that do to whatever circumstance you're experiencing? I mean, you can find so much hope in Jesus if you can hear the good news that he's declaring. So for those of us here who lack hope this morning, if you feel like you're prone to fear and prone to speculation and, and life seems out of control, Jesus wants you to trust that history is in his hands. History is in his hands. That his death and resurrection mean that the most powerful forces of evil don't get the last word in his world. Amen? Let's pray. Well, God, that's, I guess that's what, that's what we want to ask this morning. And I know, I know this is kind of like hard to, to sit with, to ask for you to show us blind spots. <laughs> um, because we love, we love our fairy tale imaginations and, 
I don't know that we always want to be super honest about what's going on in this world, but, we, but we're going to ask for a kingdom-saturated imagination. That way we would be truthful. And that we would acknowledge there's real darkness. We're going to acknowledge that it's there, but that the darkness would not overwhelm us. I really believe for all of us here today, men, women, moms, all of us, that our ultimate hope is in you. And I pray that we could, that we could trust and believe that, that your light is shining in the darkness and there's nothing. I know it doesn't always seem it, but there's nothing the darkness can do to extinguish the light of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to place our hope in you, Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to risk the courage of sitting in places of humility so that you can do in us what we can't do for ourselves. And we're going to be a people who pray Jesus-centered prayers because, because we believe that you are life. And we want that life. So meet us where we are. If we're going to be bold and courageous and humble ourselves, Jesus, would you come quickly? And would you come gently? And would you meet us where we are? And would you help us go forward and be strengthened to be men and women, prince and princesses in your kingdom? Because that's what we were created for. And that's what we want to be. So it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.